Here is one of our many recordings from the Revolutionary Ideas Online Festival held on the 28th and 29th of November 2020. This was a weekend of Marxist discussion and debate held by Socialist Alternative. Want to join our fight? Go to socialistalternative.net today and get in touch to play your role in the struggle for a world free of capitalist oppression. Certain bourgeois commentators will tell you that dialectical materialism is a defunct philosophy. However, the same commentators will also tell you that Marxism has got no relevance to the modern world. Socialist alternative would dispute that viewpoint. Um, and I would say that to those commentators that just saying something or wishing it so does not make it an actuality. The reality is since the 2008 crash, um, even many of the more far-sighted bourgeois commentators have turned towards Marx for his analysis, if not necessarily for his solutions. Marxism is an economic theory, and of course it's a school of political thought. But underlying these, Marxism is a philosophical doctrine. More specifically, dialectical materialism is the philosophy on which Marxism is based. Is philosophy important? Is it just too complex? Well, is it too complex? I would say not. Of course, you can go down a rabbit hole, delving deeper and deeper into debates and theories, but I would compare it to mathematics. Many of us will not be appraised of the latest developments on advanced or applied mathematics. However, we will have a solid understanding of maths that enable us to negotiate our way through the world. Is it important? Surely occupations, strikes, insurrections, revolutions, there's what, they are what's really important. And of course they are. But we need an understanding of how and why those movements occur. So I hope at the end of this um, workshop, you'll agree with me that philosophy is important. And don't just take it from me. Um, take it from Leon Trotsky, who said, in the early 20th century, the Narodnik terrorists, bomb in hand, used to mock Lenin as wanting to found a school for dialectical materialism, whilst they wanted to overthrow Tsarism. But as Trotsky noted, the Russian Revolution was led not by those who started with bombs, but by those who started with dialectical materialism. Philosophy at its simplest is the study of the nature of reality and existence, and it's also a set of principles. Dialectical materialism is the means by which we analyze events. We'll use dialectical materialism to analyze the latest events in Israel-Palestine, developments in China, Trumpism, and back in history, looking at the French and Russian Revolution. Um, it is the method of looking at processes in society and the developments occurring under the surface to understand society and prepare for events ahead. And when I say prepare for events, I mean prepare to intervene in events and change the world that we live in. As Marxists, we are not predestinationists. We do not see events set in stone. And as Marx said, you know, to paraphrase Marx, um, philosophers said, um, analyze the world, but the point is to change it. When we look at the world and how the world or society has developed since the earliest days of primitive communism, society has always been divided into classes and therefore our outlook cannot be anything but a class-based outlook. There will be some who say philosophy sits above class, that it seeks some abstract truth 
But that, in my opinion, to use an unscientific term, is just academic tosh. Now, our philosophy is rooted in a class-based analysis of society, and that is what gives it strength. Is there a universal or abstract truth? Well, to some extent, perhaps, the, you know, the Earth is a globe in general terms, although some conspiracy theorists would have us believe that it could be flat. But so often truth is conditional. It's in flux and relative to other facts, especially in relation when we're considering social life. Dialectical materialism, dialectical materialism marks a significant step towards understanding truth in that it identifies that everything is in a constant state of change. It does not seek to defend or explain the status quo, to defend a ruling elite, or to establish a new permanent truth. Dialectical materialism seeks to understand the world in its state of flux and to empower the mass of people, the working class, to change it, to develop it. Dialectical materialism, um, as developed by Marx, is a fusion of two schools of thought, dialectics and materialism. And before going on to dialectics, I want to take a few moments just to examine materialism alongside a contrasting doctrine, um, idealism. Materialism in everyday language is about accumulating objects, it's about greed, a rather base quality. Idealism is seen perhaps in contrast as being principled, but a dreamer, somewhat naive, but viewed as being a noble um, viewpoint. In philosophy, however, the terms take on a rather different complexion. In essence, in philosophical terms, materialism means the conditions that we live in shape our consciousness. Idealism counterposes that it is consciousness or ideas that shape conditions. There are three strands basically to idealism. The unknowable sphere, where religion steps into the void to explain things that can't be explained. The subjective, where everything is in our mind and also that the material world is dependent upon the idealistic world. By contrast in materialism, everything is knowable. The world in exists independently of us and ideas or consciousness depend on the material world. Marx in his pamphlet, The German Ideology, set out how people are conditioned by the development of their productive forces and their social interaction. He stated that consciousness can never be anything other than a conscious existence and existence is the actual life process. That consciousness expands as conditions develop and knowledge grows. By this, we see that our ideas of how to organize society arise from where we are now. The development of technology has given us the ability to harness the environment around us and therefore to organize society in a way that could not have been predicted or specified in 1848 or 1917, we are of our time. To consider the difference between materialism and idealism, an example could be taken from nature or thunderstorm. In the early days, perhaps a thunderstorm was seen as God's anger. However, as the boundaries of science expanded, the material explanation becomes accepted. Of course, we now know that thunderstorms are caused as warm air rises into cooler air and the reaction that occurs. And that touches on some laws of dialectics, which I'll come on to later. For many people, materialism may now be accepted in the natural world, if not necessarily understood, at least as far as science reaches. But in social life, the picture or the distinctions are, lost, are less clear cut. 
There are those who will be materialists when considering the natural world, but turn to idealism when considering the social world. When we look at why are the rich and poor in our society, idealists will, um, will seek the answer within individuals that they are lazy, lacking in intelligence, making poor choices. Now we all make bad choices at some stage, but are people living in poverty because they make bad choices, because they make poor choices, such as buying a TV or a packet of fags rather than paying off the debt? Or is it precisely because people are living in poverty that they make those poor choices or what could be perceived as poor choices? There are scientific studies that demonstrate the detrimental impact of poverty on long-term thinking and decision-making. But don't go looking for those studies in the pages of the Daily Mail. The question delves into the whole issue of nature versus nurture. The idealist will see an internal solution, the supremacy of genes, whereas we seek the answer in the primacy of societal conditions, although genes and biology may have an impact. But I referred to the Daily Mail, not jokingly, because we need to recognise that there are vested interests in maintaining idealism. They will put out that that's the way things have always been. There will always be a rich and poor. And that way, try and convince workers that we can never change the system. I'm a trade unionist and I regularly see the impact of increasing stress levels in the workplace. The idealist will see the solution to this through greater individual resilience by mindfulness courses or yoga, etc. Not necessarily bad in themselves, but the idealist finger is pointing at your weakness. The materialist, by contrast, sees the solution in addressing working conditions, increased workloads, higher targets, less staff. And thus you can see how vested interests operate. The idealist sees the problem and the solution within the individual and the employer is let off the hook. It's nothing to do with them. Whereas the materialist sees the issues lying fundamentally within working conditions. The solutions, if you adopt the materialist approach, are best sought in a collective a strategy. It teaches of the need to organise to bring about effective change against the interest of the status quo, against the interest of the bosses. It points the finger at the boss, or more specifically, points it at capitalism. Idealists will say, if we can only persuade the boss to be nicer, to have a kinder, gentler capitalism, it's naive, that viewpoint, but it's much more than that. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of how capitalism works. It speaks to reformism, the idea that you can improve capitalism, make it a more palatable beast where we can all prosper, unless we're lazy, of course. We can, of course, improve conditions under capitalism, but those improvements are transitory, subject to ebb and flow. If we look at the welfare state in this country, we can now see how that's being driven back. Yes, we can improve capitalism under cap. We can improve conditions under capitalism, and we will strive to do so. But you cannot improve capitalism. Marx, of course, analysed how capitalism works. How, in essence, the boss survives and he thrives by the extraction of surplus value from the worker. The idea: if you work eight hours, six hours may be for yourself, but two is for the boss, who doesn't have add value. That is, doesn't work. <coughs> I, I simplify those ideas, of course, but if comrades want to start exploring these ideas further, I direct you in the first instance to wages, prices and profit. Idealism, even when allied to progressive ideas, is based upon a weak foundation. 
Thus, you can look at the the initiatives created by the likes of Robert Owen and other utopians in creating model villages, factories or communes, all doomed to failure in the end. Materialism dates back to ancient Greece through to the Enlightenment. But before Marx, materialism was basically mechanistic. The world was a machine to be understood. It saw change everywhere, but not necessarily development. And crucially, it had no comment or little comment on social life and the way it develops. It saw a change in circumstances, but not the role the masses play. But Marx and his theses on Feuerbach started to develop the ideas. He wrote that the materialist doctrine that, that men are products of circumstances and upbringing and that therefore changed men are produced by changed circumstances and changed upbringing forgets that the circumstances are changed precisely by men and that the educator must be educated. Individuals are not the causes of development in society, although they may light the fuse. Social changes are not brought about primarily by great men or indeed great women, but by the development of internal forces of society. Of course, individuals have a role to play in the tide of events. Henry VIII, Napoleon, Lenin, all influenced the course of history. But even such titans were only able to do that because of the development of society to that point. Thus, the development of capitalism creates the conditions for socialism. Which brings us on to the second part of Marxist philosophy, which is dialectics. Dialectics sees not a series of things, but a series of processes. It examines those processes and thinks of things in their context, in their state of change and development, and in their interaction with other things. If we look at etymology, the study of words, we'll find that the word dialectic comes from the Greek word dialego, which means to discuss or debate a question from all sides, allowing for a different and contradictory views to oppose and clash before reaching a resolution. Combined with materialism, dialectic seeks to, ceases to be a way of arguing, but rather becomes a method of analysis both in nature and society. And that fundamentally is what dialectical materialism is. It's a method of analysis. Dialectics is the opposite of metaphysical, which sees things in their abstract rather than the context. Whereas dialectics sees human nature corresponding to the conditions, metaphysics sees it as independent from the existence. Democracy to a metaphysicist is an abstract or pure concept. It's black and white, is a country democratic or not? Whereas a dialectical approach will see democracy in context and as a process, dependent upon social relations, the role of media, money, etc., and can see the difference between a bourgeois and workers' democracy. Is Britain democratic? To a metaphysicist, the answer is yes, or possibly no. To a dialectical viewpoint, the question is more fluid and contextual. Jeremy Corbyn had the right to stand, he could hold meetings, his supporters could organise rallies, but the media controlled by a minority sought to undermine him, the Tories had rich financial backers. So the answer can never be absolute. And to a metaphysicist similarly, the election result is also an absolute, the Tories won. However, a dialectical approach will recognise that the election result is but a momentary snapshot of the balance of forces within society. And that balance is already changing the next day. 
And even in that one moment, the complexity of issues means the snapshot gives an incomplete picture of the balance of forces or the views of the electorate. Metaphysicists see things separate from the conditions, from, from changes, from developments, and free from the interconnectivity of things. A metaphysical approach can seem like common sense. Something is one thing and not another. Of course, it's necessary to classify things. It can make for clear thinking if we put a label on something. But if we consider things wholly in their isolation or as a fixed constant, we will go wrong in our analysis. We must look at the interconnection of things and their constant state of flux. It leads us to assess the mood of the class and look at how we formulate our demands. It leads us towards the transitional program and that approach to how we pose ourselves. Is it right to call a strike? As a trade unionist and as a revolutionary, I can all answer that question simply with a yes. There are many positive reasons to call a strike. It brings together workers in collective action. It poses the question of dual power. It helps workers understand the sense of power that they hold. And even if a strike is lost, it can be a positive thing. But should we call a strike in all circumstances? No. We need to take account of a number of factors. The mood amongst the workforce, the level of public support, the political environment, the strength of the employer. To answer simply yes is to take a metaphysical approach. We need to consider the, the question in a dialectical manner. And in that um, sense, I just want to reflect on a couple of quotes from Lenin. Um, firstly, from left-wing communism and inf infantile disorder, when he said, of course, in politics, it would be absurd to con concoct a general rule that would serve all cases. One must have the brains to analyze the situation in each separate case. And in one step forward, two steps back, he said, genuine dialectics proceeds by means of a thorough detailed analysis of a process in all its concreteness. The fundamental thesis of dialectics is that there is no such thing as an abstract. Truth is always concrete. And what he meant was that truth will not come by applying some specific or universal formula, but that you must look at the process, what forces are at work, how do they relate to each other, which are rising and growing, which are decaying, and the interaction between them. Engels, in his book, Dialectics of Nature, um, developed a number of laws pertaining to dialectics. Um, he was looking specifically at nature, but the application is there to society as well. And I just want to take a moment to, to explore um, these laws. The first one is the unity in conflict or interpenetration of opposites. This law states that there is a connection between everything. Opposites are not separable, but connected. I gave the example earlier of a thunderstorm where there is a conflict or interpenetration of opposites, the warm air and the cold air. The unity and interpenetration of these opposites leads to the rainfall. The contradictions in society are, are these opposites and their conflict is constant and provides a state of flux. It is the same and different at the same time. And you can see that in, in biology as well. If you look at the human body, I can be the same person in one sense that I was a day, a year ago. People will identify me and recognize me, but I am entirely different, changed not just by experience, but also by physically as your cells die and are renewed. The workforce in a factory or in a call center 
is exactly the same. It's the same workforce as yesterday, but it's different. The level of consciousness has changed, perhaps marginally, but acted upon by external forces, external to the workplace, it may on occasion have changed markedly. Today, the workforce will vote for strike action when yesterday they would not. The same degree of precision cannot be applied to this law in, the, in society as it can in the natural world, but it is still applicable. Everywhere there are contradictions in society, they clash, they briefly unify, separate in a changed form only to clash again. And the sense of movement is constant. It's the character of capitalism to produce wealth and advancement, but in doing so, it must produce poverty and inequalities. This leads to a conflict with the working class, but also means that workers are less able to buy the goods they are producing, thus leading to an economic crisis. There is a constant interaction and clash until a resolution, a temporary momentary resolution is found and then conflict again. But the economy has changed, it has developed. Each side is affected, influenced and modified by the others. Contradictions are the driving force of change. Without that contradiction, the thing would remain unchanged. Unity of opposites is conditional, temporary, relative, but the struggle of the opposites, that process is absolute. The second law developed by Engels was um, negation of the negation. And basically that, that's talking about where a qualitative change through contradictions that annul or negate the previous stages of development can occur. The seed of a slump is present in every boom and vice versa. However, the process is different each time. A slump may be deeper this time, a boom may last longer, but the process is, is also the same. Um, our Oxbridge and Harvard educated bankers and hedge fund managers fail to realize this and they act like excitable children thinking the party will never end until the bubble bursts. Gordon Brown said a few decades back now, probably, that he had overcome boom and bust. He wasn't just guilty of self-congratulatory hyperbole and delusion, but of a fundamental misunderstanding of society and capitalism. Negation is based on the fact that a system of things contains contradictions which will leap forward to qualitative change. Therefore, negation is a progressive concept. If you negate the previous negation, you do not go back. You cannot go back to the previous stage. You will have moved on to a higher stage of development. And that's where movements um, from the past right through to today, the Luddites, Neurobnics, environmentalists, some of them of today go wrong. You cannot simply go back to the past to replicate some golden, simpler time. And that brings us on to the, um, the final law um, that Engels developed, which is quantity into quality. History is not a smooth, inter uninterrupted arc of evolutionary development, but rather is interrupted by sudden and abrupt changes. Of course, this applies in nature as well, and Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species is an excellent example of this. Dominance of one contradiction when that changes, we have qualitative change. Quantitative, ch quantitative is changed to qualitative, qualitative by internal and external forces. 
Um, if we look at the, the Russian Revolution, there were clearly internal contradictions within society at the time. But the First World War acted as a catalyst, an external catalyst. To use a rather simplistic example, um, uh, I'll use the example of a chicken. If you take a newly laid egg, the chicken sits on the egg, and by the application of heat from the chicken, the egg changes, develops. You can't see the change, you just see an egg, but a quantity of change is taking place inside the egg. Then, after 21 days, the chick hatches. There has been a qualitative change. The egg has become a chicken, a young chicken. Um, this qualitative change would not have happened without the external force of the chicken, the heat but it also needs those internal conditions in place. A chicken can sit on a stone for 21 days or 21 years, but there will be no qualitative change. The rule applies equally, but again, in a less precise manner to society. And we will look at um, social movements. At what point do the actions of a number of individuals become a mass movement? Many of us were involved in the anti-poll tax movement back in the early 90s. They the developed a mass non-payment campaign, uh, but at what point did that mass non-payment campaign, which started out with a handful of people, actually become a mass movement um, with, a, with the power to overthrow governments as it did? This is a critical point. How do we know when the internal conditions are ready to produce a qualitative change, if and when that external trigger is, is applied? Every day in society, the capitalist class take advantage of the workers. There are a million and one triggers, but when will those triggers actually ignite the um, ignite the movements? As Marxists, we analyze what is going on in society and the impact it has upon the masses. Is the mood getting angry? Is the temperature rising or dropping? That analysis is a science. When we speak at a workplace meeting, when we do a campaign stall, we are taking the temperature of the workers. And if we get that wrong, we may detach ourselves from the masses, place a barrier between, between us and them. That may lead to an unnecessary or foreseeable, unnecessary and foreseeable defeat. Conversely, we might miss a great opportunity. If the workers are ready for action now, then we must take action now, because tomorrow the mood may have changed and we've lost that opportunity. To judge the mood of the masses is not an easy task. And that is why we analyze developments. It's why we spend so much time analyzing developments in society. If we get it wrong, we do not, we not, we do not just fail the masses. We also risk stunning or demotivating um, the activists and our comrades. And that happens. Many good activists um, were stunned when Corbyn lost the last election. They genuinely thought he would win. They had misread the mood. Now, I'm not being critical. It can be quite easy to get caught up in our own bubble of optimism. But comrades, it is a cautionary tale. And of course, it's not just activists, you know, who can get the mood wrong. The bourgeois get the mood wrong. When Tony Blair won the election in 97, the media, the establishment thought a Rubicon had been crossed and new safer politics had been created. But I know our organisation saw through that jubilation by talking, by interacting with the class. We knew it wasn't a celebration of Blairism. It was a delight at getting rid of the Tories. Um, and it brought to mind to me, the British prime minister at the, in the early 18th century, Robert Walpole, talking about the war of Jenkins' ear. 
um, when he, he used the phrase, today they may ring the bells, but tomorrow they may ring the, they will ring their hands, anticipating the change. And that's um, so often missed. Marx wrote a letter to Engels back in 1868, in which he said, owing to a certain judicial blindness, even the best of intelligences, best intelligence, intelligences absolutely fail to see the things that lie in front of their noses. Later, when the moment has arrived, we are surprised to find traces everywhere of what we fail to see. When I joined Militant many years ago, I remember being taught three easy to remember quotes that have stayed with me. Work with what you've got, attention to detail. And the final quote was foresight over astonishment or in full as Trotsky wrote, the superiority of foresight over astonishment. And that is by studying the processes taking place in society, by assessing how the masses are reacting to events, by seeing what lies beneath the surface, that will ensure that we are prepared for what tomorrow holds. Will we always get it right? Of course not. We're revolutionaries, not clairvoyants, but we will be prepared for what tomorrow brings. And when the opportunity arises, when the opportunity presents itself to advance the interests of the working class and to transform society, we will be ready. I'm going to end just with a final quote um, that Lenin wrote in his obituary for Engels, when he said, the services rendered by Marx and Engels to the working class may be expressed in a few words thus. They taught the working class to know itself and be conscious of itself, and they substituted science for dreams. Thanks very much, comrades.